0: Okay, a uh, very warm welcome to all of you. Delighted to see uh, so many people have come to a series of seminars which I think are extremely significant for the world we're in. This, this room was actually apparently an uh, operating theatre before. So it's good to be talking about ethics of science uh, in it. Uh, I'm Ian and I'm the director of the Oxford Martin School, and what we are seeking to do is bring people together. To, at the cutting edge of research in different disciplines uh, to try and have interdisciplinary conversations which will advance the frontier and help us deal with some of the biggest challenges in the world. So, this seminar series is designed to think about ethical issues across six of the different topics uh, that we are dealing with in the school. And uh, today's an extremely good kickoff with uh, uh, Professor Miles Allen, who leads our group on resource stewardship Uh, and that's Julian Savalescu who is the director of the Oxford Martin Institute for the Ethics of Science Um, Julian also has been instrumental in motivating for this series and I want to thank you uh, for all the work you put into that and also to Alison and and Clara uh, who helped to make it happen so the series is going to cover a range of topics Um, today uh, climate Next week, on the 8th of February, we'll have Dapo Akende, who leads uh, one of the co-directors of our group on ethics, law, and armed (coughs) conflict, and also the new program we're having on the rights of future generations, uh, together with Alexander Livinghouse of the Oxford Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. The following week, on the 15th of February, uh, Paul Klenerman will talk about infectious diseases uh, and the moral maze of pandemic control. Uh, the following week, on the 27th of February, Jane Langdale and Miam Dolan, who are the co-directors of our plants for the 21st Century Group, will talk about the ethics of plant sciences, GMOs, and all of that. And uh, on the 1st of March, Professor Steve Rayner, who is here uh, of the Oxford Geoengineering Programme, also involved in the Resource Stewardship Programme, in the Future of Cities programs, and many other programmes in the Oxford Martin School. We'll talk about geoengineering and the ethics of that. And the final one on the 8th of March, uh, Dr. Sonia Trigueros, who is the co-director of our program on nanotechnology, will talk about nanomedicine and some of the issues that are emerging from nano. So it's really a fascinating series um, of lectures, and I'm actually delighted to kick it off on a high point. <laughs> Thank Miles, you. over to you and Julian. You're going thank to introduce Miles. Yes,
1: thank you. Thanks, again. So, how this will work is um, the speaker will uh, speak about the science and, and their reflections on the ethics for about 40 minutes. I may make a few remarks for, for about 10 minutes, but then it will be open discussion. And today we have a, a couple of world famous philosophers here, so I hope that they will be active in the discussion as well. Uh, ben and Foddy will, uh, my deputy director for the Institute for Science and Ethics, uh, chair some of these sessions, but it's a great pleasure to, to kick it off with uh, somebody as um, as appropriate as Professor Miles Allen, as as Ian said, he's the co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Resource Stewardship, of which I'm a member, and the professor of Geosystem science. Um, he has uh, he's also um, the head of the Climate Dynamics Group in the university's Department of Physics. His research focuses on how human and natural influences uh, on climate, contribute to observe climate change and risks of extreme weather, in quantifying their implications for long-range climate forecasts. He served on the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change as lead author on detection of climate change and attribution of causes for the third assessment in 2001, and as review editor on the global climate projections for the fourth assessment in 2007. Miles proposed the use of probabilistic event attribution to quantify the contribution of human and other external influences on climate. Specific individual weather events, and leads the da- the uh, Climate Prediction Net project using distributed computing to run the world's largest ensemble climate modelling experiments. We are aiming that these are non-technical and open to a wide audience. So uh, I, I I'm sure Miles will make put this in, in plain language for us all. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you. Thank you very much, Trudy. Well, <laughs>
2: It, I, I do, do appreciate the introduction, particularly Julian emphasising that I would talk about the science and other people would talk about the ethics, because I'm you know, not, not an ethicist here. In fact, that was kind of my opening slide, really, was I, I'm a physicist by background, um, so you may uh, think of standing in the humanities uh, faculty, uh, why am I here talking to you about resource stewardship? Um, and I, I'll, I'll explain, but I'll emphasise, um, the only thing I would disagree with about um, Julian's Introduction was his suggestion that everybody keeps quiet while I'm talking and then Julian will talk for a bit. Um, I appreciate this is a diverse audience and so I, I really don't want anybody to think, oh, well, I'll just take his word for it if I say something which sounds like gibberish. So please intervene. Um, if it gets out of hand, I may say, "Look, okay, let's just move on," um, and, and forgive me for that. But, uh, but but I think it'll be it'll be just generally I think it'll work better for for this kind of breadth of audience if people feel free to to stick their hands up if I say if I say something that sounds incomprehensible. If, if I say something you should just flatly disagree with, then perhaps just wait, okay? But if I say something you <laughs> don't understand, then then then. No. Uh, then please 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 uh, explain. So, so basically the background of this and, and why am I involved in this resource stewardship program uh, with the Oxford Martin School um, is that I've been working as, as a physicist on climate change for many years um, and you know we keep publishing papers saying different aspects explaining different aspects of the climate problem um, and nothing keeps happening. Um, there's this sort of feeling that you, know, you can lead a horse to water but you drink and the real challenges in the climate problem are increasingly on the the human side, the the, the ethical dilemmas raised by uh, the whole climate question uh, rather than uh, the scientific problem of is the climate changing and, and, and what might that imply. I'm not suggesting at all straight away and I know there's some members of the physics department here that it's all done on the science side um, I think there's, there's obviously plenty we still need to research in understanding climate change and understanding uh, what it means for people, but it's, some of the, for me, some of the really most interesting questions uh, arise from where the sort of science and ethics overlap, so that's why that, the, the background to my uh, interest in the Oxford Martin programme on resource stewardship, which is a much broader programme looking at the challenge of resource stewardship across a large range of, of, of areas. Um, The kind of questions that we really focus on in this programme, I'm just going to take five minutes to tell you a little bit about the On Pause uh, programme, it's the interplay between technical information, uh, illustrated here for example by the very detailed information that's provided on African climate, and actual decision makers. So the question which arises, which this sort of programme is trying to address, is how does We can improve the technical information we provide, we can can improve seasonal and climate forecasts for Africa, for example, as hard as we can. But when we look at what people do, and Steve in particular has done some research on how people react to this kind of information, and you find that improving the quality, in inverted commas, of the information provided isn't always essential or or may may not even make any difference to how uh, effectively that information gets used. And this is a this is a, the, the research Steve did was looking at the impact of uh, relatively short-term forecasts. But I think the same analogy applies to the the climate issue. If we you know we we're, we're, we're beavering away trying to improve the reliability and precision of our forecasts of climate for 2050 to 2100. And yet I ask myself whether that's really the nub of the issue. Is is it the fact that people don't? know what's going to happen, the real obstacle to actually doing anything about climate change. And so this, this lecture is about thinking about what the what the real obstacles are and, and actually sort of some of the ethical dilemmas that come up in discussing the, um, uh, the, the the climate issue. So most of this lecture will be about climate, but before I get on to that, I just wanted to uh, <coughs> just tell you what the different work streams in the Oxford Martin Programme on Resource Stewardship are doing. Uh, we have uh, one work stream which is sort theoretical, if you like, it's under- thinking about the problem of, of how we understand the way decision networks behave. So um, one of the problems we have, for example, in the climate issue is we have this model, um, which I'll come back to in a minute, of a global decision maker. In effect, the idea that we, we will gather together in, a, in some kind of international conference and agree on a, agree a consensus policy for climate for the coming decade. And it's 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 basically this unitary decision maker, which I think is part of the problem of actually making progress on climate, because of course that's not the way decisions get made. Decisions emerge from networks of decision makers. They they very seldom, except under sort of pretty extreme political (coughs) systems, get made by a single agent. Um, Certainly, decisions at the level. Um, of uh, and the implications of, of, of the climate one. So understanding how decisions emerge from networks is a is a key um, aspect of the Encores program. And a lot of that work is uh, theoretical. Thinking about and, and Chris Farmer, who's also here somewhere, is is. is also in, is engaged in the, the, the mathematics of, of how these networks work and how you can try and how you can try and discern what the network is um, when you're sort of looking at what decisions get made and, and how they're affected by inputs and outputs. Um, there's a second work stream we've got, which Steve and Tim Palmer are involved in, with, uh, and, and uh, David Vanilla uh, is, is involved in several of these workstreams, <coughs> um, uh, which is understanding uh, decision makers um, and how they behave, so going out and, and, and talking to uh, individuals um, and uh, working out sort of what the, the, the nodes of this decision network, if you like, how, how those nodes actually function. Um, and uh, I've and in fact they've already recruited a couple of postdocs whose names I've forgotten who will be working on that. So this is actually out of date, it's not David Bell, <coughs> but it's Sophie, first. Sophie Haynes. So, Sophie Haynes uh, is, is going to be going to be working with who, who may well be here. Hello Sophie. Welcome <laughs> to the Oxford Martin <Optimizer laughs> Programme on Resource Stewardship. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well anyway, you see it's a well prepared lecture. Um, and, um, so, so let me edit the slide slightly. Okay, anyway, okay, so just bear with me on that one. And, and then there's a, a third work stream uh, looking at uh, resource allocation decisions uh, on the particular area, uh, water and, and land uh, resource allocation, which um, uh, Jim Hall, Kathy Willis and Renny Benares uh, are involved in. <coughs> but I'm I'm going to talk about um, what we sort of christened work stream zero. So I'm... I'm uh, for, for reasons which I don't, I, I'm not entirely clear on, uh, I'm coordinating this, this enterprise, um, and, but I'm, I'm left with a, a sort of small amount of, of, of research to sort of push on myself, and the area which I want to focus on under this programme um, is this whole question of how, the, how we treat the atmosphere as a global exhaustible resource. And this is really what this lecture's is going to be about, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going to now focus on... Uh, thinking about resource stewardship in the context of of, of climate change uh, and emissions, and how we treat the atmosphere in emissions. Um, And I'm going to motivate this because the the main thing the uh, Oxford Martin Programme on Resource Stewardship has done so far has been uh, for me and Jason Blackstock to fly to Doha in Qatar to attend (coughs) the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change conference there. Which is interesting because there was nothing like going to Doha. This is Doha um, by night uh, to make (laughs) you think about the ethics Mm -hmm. of resource (laughs) stewardship. And uh, so it's an extraordinary place. Um, It is built, of course, on fossil fuel wealth. Um, It's the highest per capita income country in the world. It's the highest carbon emissions per capita country in the world. Um, From it's also, you know, from this. Picture, you can see it presents immediately some very fundamental challenges to the kind of um, things we can tend to take for granted in the climate issue. Um, I attended the uh, World Business Council on Sustainable Development meeting there and had a, a, an interesting argument with somebody from Philips who was uh, very proud of the impact of uh, Philips low energy light bulbs on uh, emissions. Um, and you know, this scene, many of those bulbs you're seeing there are low energy <coughs> light bulbs. I, but I think it does raise the question of the impact of more efficient technologies on emissions. Uh, we tend to, uh, the, the impact of low energy light bulbs in Doha is just, well, let's use more of them um, rather than uh, let's uh, emit less. So, so you know, th- and, and, and that's not unique to, to, to Doha either. Listen. Studies around which suggest that you know, the implications of more efficient use of resources are not always. Um, but um, Nick, Gary's here, and we're going to hope sort of may have, have an argument about that uh, when, we, when we get to to, to question time. but Don't interrupt yet, yeah, please, Nick. <laughs> um, because uh, that would be a disagreement as opposed to a technical issue. Um, the, the, the symbol of Doha for me actually was this 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 orange thing in in the foreground, which you, I saw first by night, and it was this amazing. Um, uh, it turn- changes colour, yeah, I should have had a movie, but it's waves of colour go up it as the LEDs change. Um, and then in the morning you go past and you discover it's a multi-storey car park. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and it's the kind of, and it's easy to, well, you know, okay, so it's easy for us to sort of, so to, 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 to laugh at that. Um, but then you sort of step back a bit and say, well, um, we're replacing our kitchen. <laughs> confessional mode here, because I'm in a humanities world, so you're supposed to um, um, <laughs> um, so, 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 we're, we're currently replacing our kitchens. We're spending a whole lot of hassle and a whole lot of money. And just before it started, our 6 year what was wrong with the old kitchen? And it was a tough question to answer, but you know, it worked. Um, so why? We, well, but we think we, we, we were fed up with it, we wanted a nicer one. Well, you know, the Qataris are fed up with what they had. Or well, they wanted a nicer one. So, so I, I think it there's, you know, it's it's very easy to look at this and, and say, well, that sort of conspicuous consumption is wrong, but I, I think perhaps we can flag this for the for discussion. You know, is that is there any sense in which we can sort of sit here in Oxford, in the Oxford Martin program, and say this consumption is okay and that consumption is wrong? So part of this talk will be really asking, you know, to, to, to what extent can we Decouple the whole climate issue from these arguments about good versus bad consumption, because it's the sort of ethics of consumption that is is critical, I think, uh, ultimately critical to the to the climate um, issue. And, and, and this and, and, and the problem of uh, separating arguments about the ethics of consumption from what we do about climate <laughs> is is uh, central to actually making any progress on climate at all. Because as long as the argument remains about the ethics of consumption. As long as the argument seems to revolve around telling the Qataris they can't have more skyscrapers, we're not going to make any progress. But I'm going to start off with a much more (coughs) specific question, which we were talking about in Doha, uh, which is also the subject of uh, an Oxford Martin uh, policy brief that Jason Blackstock and I are are working on at the moment. Uh, At least we're working on when we find the time to do so, which we we are trying to. which is um, a, a sort of current hot topic, as it were, in uh, the whole climate change debate, which is prioritizing uh, short-lived versus long-lived climate pollutants. And you may think, well, oh, he's gonna get technical at this point here, but it's actually a topic which really brings home some of the ethical issues, or highlights some of the ethical issues involved in the climate debate. Um, so that's one point I want to talk about. And, and the second one, uh, which we've also dis- much discussed in Doha, um, was what are the implications of the new uh, loss and damage agenda, um, which has now been placed on the UNFCCC, uh, into in the UNFCCC discussions? Um, and the, the implications of this loss and damage agenda is that we're going to start talking about, at least, not necessarily doing anything about it, but talking about what countries that are adversely affected and by unavoidable consequences of climate change what their entitlements might be. Uh, are they entitled to compensation? And if they are entitled to compensation, from whom does that compensation come? That's a really interesting uh, ethical dimension to the climate question, which is relatively new. And one of the worries I have about a lot of the discussions that I heard going on there is they're essentially ethical dis- they're, they're essentially ethical discussions um, disguised as technical discussions. So this whole discussion about short-lived versus long-lived climate pollutants, it's carried on in a very opaque technical language of greenhouse gas metrics and global warming potentials versus global temperature potentials. I don't worry if those words do I mean anything to you, they don't mean anything to most people using them either. And, um, <coughs> and, and what's, you know, Whereas the, the really important questions are actually ethical ones that are not really out on the table, at least are uh, uh, sort of being sort of slipped in by the back door, um, and uh, that is, that's worrying, and that's why, you know, one of the reasons I think why, why the um, uh, issue is making such um, uh, slow progress. So, so let's talk a little bit about these short-lived climate pollutants, because um, you may have heard of them, if you're an outsider of the climate issue, you may have heard of soot and methane as the sort of new in-vogue issues, the way we're going to solve climate change. Um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a whole new initiative, the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, launched last year um, with a big push from the Obama administration. Um, there's sort of Hillary Clinton and others launching this initiative. And the aim of this initiative is to make uh, rapid reductions in agents like methane and soot, uh, which affect the climate, um, and they affect the climate considerably in the short term, um, and are uh, uh, arguably the, the fastest way of reducing climate change by attacking these short-lived climate pollutants. So this is an example of a brick kiln somewhere which is clearly gushing soot into the atmosphere at an alarming rate. And it's not only you know, the other attraction of, uh, attack, or attraction of these pollutants or attraction of um, uh, attacking these pollutants is that they cause a lot of harm in addition to the uh, warming effect they have on the Earth's climate. So you can motivate people to do something about those kind of emissions, um, in, even if, you know, you, without talking about climate at all. Um, so, so that's the sort of, the, 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 these co-benefit arguments are used extensively to motivate um, more, and, and more focus on short-lived climate pollutants. And, but what, you know, and, and sort of this is a typical of, of a lot of the rhetoric about these things, <laughs> article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago, people did everything they could to reduce blank carbon emissions so would strip half a degree temperature out of the process of global warming. Or to put it another way, give politicians two extra decades to tackle the less tractable question of what to do about CO2. <laughs> so if you're a politician, particularly if you're a politician in, in the US, or high uh, emitting, or Qatar for that matter, that's great news. I and mean, 20 years is, is forever. So, so, if, I mean, it's certainly probably beyond, maybe not in Qatar, but, but, but in America it would be beyond your term limit. So, you don't need to, uh, to, to, to worry particularly about, about uh, you know, you no longer need to, the implication is you no longer need to worry about uh, CO2. And, uh, uh, I mean, Jason is uh, much more, Jason Blackstock, uh, uh, who works with Steve in, in INSIS, I should say, in the Institute of Science, Innovation and Society. Um, is uh, much more plugged into the policy community than I am, but he says there are plenty of politicians out there who are jumping on this as, yeah, great, we can we can solve climate change this way, so we don't need to worry about CO2 emissions anymore. Um, and you know, the question is, okay, so where do these numbers come from? So let's just think a little bit about what these uh, <coughs> what these uh, agents are and what the difference is between them and carbon dioxide. <coughs> So these uh, so-called short-lived climate pollutants, um, methane, black carbon, um, also tropospheric ozone is another one which also has a, a, a substantial short-term impact on climate, they persist in the atmosphere for anywhere between a few days to a decade or so for methane, um, whereas in contrast, carbon dioxide, um, once it's released from fossil sources, continues to affect the active the active carbon cycle, uh, forever. I mean, in effect, until it's um, turned back into rock again by natural processes, which you can imagine is uh, a relatively slow uh, process. Um, so, so you can think of CO2 as an accumulator in the system. If you pump out CO2, the impact accumulates uh, indefinitely. Um, whereas um, the, uh, the short-lived climate pollutants, So, so for CO2, its impact on climate increases the more you emit overall, whereas these short-lived climate pollutants, their impact on climate depends on how fast you're emitting them. If you stop emitting them, their impact goes down. If you, if you emit faster, the impact goes back up. It doesn't really matter what you did 20, 30 years ago, uh, because those emissions you made 20 or 30 years ago would have been, as it were, washed out of the system. Um, so, we're, we immediately see, this is sort of nicely illustrated in this figure from a uh, very well-known paper by uh, Drew Shindell and co-workers, which came out last year, um, illustrating the impact of cutting short-lived climate pollutants versus cutting long-lived uh, climate pollutants uh, in, oh my god, I guess I did. Um, so you can see here, um, the the blue curve is what sort of what you get. Notice this only goes out to 2017, which is, I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, the blue curve is what you get if you take immediate action on short-lived climate pollutants, but don't do anything about CO2. So you can see you get some mitigation of climate change in the short term, and so let's just focus on that for now. Al- alternatively, the red curve is what you get if you work as hard as you can on CO2. And one thing I'll notice is that in the short term, um, working as hard as you can on CO2 makes relatively little difference, because CO2 accumulates. Most of the climate change from CO2 that happens over the next few decades is already in the bank. It's already resulting from the CO2 emissions we've made over the past 250 years. Um, so, if you want to make a difference to climate change over the next 20, 30 years, attacking methane and soot is the right thing to do. Indeed, if you don't care about climate after 2050, there's relatively little point in doing anything about CO2. Um, I heard a rumour once, I don't know if it's true, maybe somebody else here has more information, that Donald Rumsfeld was firmly convinced that actually we're all going to out to heaven in 2050, um, anyway. And if you if you believe that, then the Bush administration's policy on climate was actually perfectly rational. I don't know if anybody here has more um, on that, but anyway. Um, so 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 it's this, it is it is about this. You know, how much do we care about uh, generations alive today versus how much we care about um, generations that would uh, be being affected by climate change beyond 2050? Uh, is, is the real dilemma here? And the difficulty with this um, problem is that, you know, based on the discussions in the UNFCCC, the hope is that the scientists are somehow going to tell people what to do about it. And so comments <coughs> such as that quote in The Economist are being passed around as... Um, you know, evidence that you can—that uh, was actually—it uh, wasn't clear from the article, whether it was a quote from Piers Forster, or just the journalist extrapolating from what Piers Forster had said. I suspect it was the latter. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, but you know, Piers Forster's a you know a, a well-known uh, a climate scientist who was uh, talking to the Economist journalist about the implications of, of, of black carbon, um, and uh, and that was where that sort of you know re- reducing black carbon could potentially buy you uh, twenty years um, for to. to think about what to do about co2 Um, so for you know for the purposes of 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 teasing this out um, for the the Doha meeting um, Jason and I sort of looked at sort of idealized representation of all this so suppose you know we've got sort of two extreme scenarios here Um, one in which co2 emissions carry on going up until after 2050 and then come down again And I mean, CO two emissions will eventually go down because there's a limit the amount of carbon we actually have underground. You know, that that, that this would constitute a uh, a, a relatively high uh, emission profile, the the red curve there, and and the blue curve corresponds to sort of immediate and aggressive CO two mitigation. So we we just sort of pulled these up to to give us sort of two uh, extreme, contrasting uh, views to sort of tease out what the impact of long-lived versus short-lived climate uh, uh, mitigation of long-lived versus short-lived climate agents was. Um, And if we sort of attack this, if we attack these short-lived pollutants immediately over the next 30 years um, then we can push these um, CO2 induced warming curves down by half a degree, okay, over that period. So you can see that, you know, that pushes the blue curve down indefinitely or alternatively it sort of delays the warming from the red curve. Okay, so that's where that sort of 20 years figure comes from. You're sort of delaying warming by roughly 20 years. Um, Or if you are reducing CO2 aggressively, you're actually having some impact on the peak warming. But what's the argument for doing this now, acting immediately on these short-lived climate pollutants, which is the sort of big debate we have at the moment. So expecting the build-up to 2015, where we're supposed to sort of agree the next a um, uh, sort of major set of targets for climate, expect a lot of discussion of this issue because a lot of people are very keen that in 2015 we get serious commitments on short-lived climate pollutants and a sort of general dither on CO2 and you can see why because apart from anything else all the action on short-lived climate pollutants will be done in places like India, southern China and so on. Um, who are understandably a little bit grumpy about the fact that suddenly they're the ones who are sort of put in the front line um, on, on the climate issue, um, but you can see how you know those countries that do not emit very much methane and black carbon uh, but emit a lot of CO2, Britain, for example, um, would, would potentially do um, very well out of a refocusing of climate policy on these short-lived agents. So you know watch this space carefully. Um, what hap- so, so the argument is, you know, we've got to act on these things now because they have an immediate benefit. On the other hand, if you ask yourself, well, what happens if we don't act on them now? So, so what happens if we do the same thing, but we just do it in 30 years' time? What does that, what does that do to the projected climate change? And again, in a very idealised, this very idealised setting, you can see the, so the dotted lines here are what you get if you just defer for 20 years. okay? <coughs> and you can see that you know, on the uh, high-end emission scenario, now, over the next 50 years, you end up with more warming, but the you know, where you end up is essentially identical. It doesn't make any difference whether you cut now or cut later. You're going to end up in the same place. For the um, low emission scenario, the really aggressive one, where you're, you're working on CO2 mitigation very hard, um, you perhaps see a slight reduction in peak warming, maybe a couple of um, a couple of uh, tenths of a degree. I mean, it's kind of marginal whether that's significant. Whether, you yeah. know, in the end, um, if you're here in 2150, having followed this this path or this one, okay, would you would would species or the ice caps be any different? I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, this one, because in reality, of course, we have you know climate noise wobbling around these curves. It's very easy to draw these things with a simple climate model. But you know the reality is it's going to be bumping around anyway, um, as indeed we've seen over the past decade. You know we've got a sort of wobble going on in, in, in temperatures at the moment, um, and uh, so it, it might actually not make that perceptible a difference, which um, a path we were to followed, and therefore the case for immediate action on short-lived climate pollutants is much less clear. In fact, we can sort of try and quantify this by saying, that, you know, what happens if we if we make early and aggressive, if we assume early and aggressive CO2 mitigation, then it makes a little bit of a difference whether we cut these short-lived climate pollutants now or if we cut them later, okay? If we don't make this early and aggressive CO2 mitigation, it makes absolutely no difference at all to where we end up. So, this is interesting because it means that the case for short-lived climate pollutants, the case for making, taking early action on short-lived climate pollutants is actually predicated on the assumption that we're going to reduce CO2. So if you frame it that way, it seems rather odd that it's been suggested as an alternative to reducing CO2, because mm. it only makes sense if you do reduce CO2. So and this is illustrated even more clearly in this figure, which is uh, from a paper um, Neil Barron's a PhD, student so just finished his PhD thesis here. Um, uh, he hasn't had his exam yet, yet so we may have to draw this figure. But hopefully, his exam is passing. Um, but uh, so, so this just illustrates the uh, relationship between the impact of these short-lived climate pollutant measures um, as on peak warming as a function of how fast CO2 emissions are changing uh, at the time the measures are implemented. And the point is, if CO2 If if CO2 is being reduced rapidly, that's sort of this region here, so if you're in a scenario where CO2 is going down fast, it's possible that reducing short-lived climate pollutants will actually make a difference to peak warming. But if you're in a scenario where CO2 emissions are going up, which is the scenario we're in, in case you haven't noticed, um, then there's no no dots in this quadrant. There's There's no circumstances under which... Cuts in these short-lived climate pollutants will make any difference to peak warming under, under circumstances that CO2 emissions are going up. Yes. Um, what, are the of the... what are the colours of the dots? They're different <laughs> scenarios of the future future emissions. Um, uh, they're different assumptions about global economic development and equity and that sort of thing. Um, and th- they're not exhaustive. There might be, but but the, the, the sort of picture but they they sort of they're, they're meant to sort of span the sort of general range of uncertainty. And, and the main point of this is you know, there are no dots up here and it's almost in, impossible to conceive of a scenario in which there would be a dot up here because in effect, unless you're reducing CO2 very rapidly, cutting these short-lived climate pollutants can't have any impact on peak warming because by the time temperatures peak, the impact of cuts in these pollutants will have completely dissipated out of the system. Um,
1: what's up with the lack of error bars? Like, what kind of error margin um. That's a that's a really
2: good question. Um. But uh. Uh. So I've got some error bars on the next plot. If you want some error bars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um. Uh, the uh. I mean, and and in fact, yeah. Producing a version of this plot with error bars would be helpful. Um. I'm not sure it would. And and. Uh, I'm just what, asking if yeah. it
1: crosses over into that quadrant
2: at all. Uh. I. I and I hesitate to say no it wouldn't because I have not actually produced that plot um, but I'm pretty confident it wouldn't because as I, as I, as I emphasised, the reason that quadrant is kind of excluded is a pretty fundamental one it really doesn't matter what you've got wrong about about the properties of these gases um, the only thing that this really depends on is the fact that CO2 accumulates and these other gases don't, so um, the only thing that could move a uh, one of these things across into that quadrant would be that if we got the fundamental properties of CO2 wrong, in that CO2 sort of turns out not to accumulate after all, and that's pretty solid. So there's, there's not a lot of error on, on that on that assumption. So I don't think including error bars on this would change the basic message of the sort of lack of dots in the top left quadrant, because it emerges from a very simple property of, of the system rather than... But it's a good question. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe Neil's examiners will require him to put bars on this and get back to you, but um, um, the um The, uh, so, I mean, uh, so each of these, you know, as we, each, each of these um, trajectories has some uncertainty around it, um, but that doesn't, but the impact of short-lived climate pollutants um, is, Folded on to that uncertainty is is uh, so the point is <coughs> if it so happens the system is a sort of higher response than I expect then the short-lived time balloons will bring me down from that but they will still have the same kind of impact yeah and so um, I so so so, the, I, I, so I, I I think it wouldn't change the the overall picture but it's a good question um, so to get on to why this matters uh, why this Why it works like this is that CO2, as I've sort of stressed uh, several times in this talk, uh, matters in the long term because CO2 emissions accumulate unlike these short-lived climate pollutants. So this is illustrated by this plot, um, three idealised profiles for emissions, one in which they carry on and they come down very fast, one in which they sort of start going down relatively soon. Um, and, um, and then the, the green one in which they start going down um, almost immediately. And the integrals under these three curves are the same. So the yellow areas above and below the blue curve are identical. So um, that area there is the same as that one. So the total amount of carbon you've injected into the atmosphere by 2150 is the same under all three scenarios. And the temperature you end up at is the same. So, this is just emphasizing the point that it doesn't really matter when you emit CO2 into the atmosphere, what matters is how it accumulates. <coughs> but this presents us with this ethical dilemma. Um, if we, um, so immediate cuts in short lived climate pollutants are very unlikely to have any impact on peak warming unless CO2 emissions are falling at the same time. So uh, if you're prepared to believe that we are going to cut CO2 emissions dramatically over the next 20 years, then it does make sense to focus on short-lived climate pollutants as a way of reducing peak warming. Um, but of course, so that. But if, you, if you don't believe that, and the evidence is against that at the moment, then it, these, uh, the cuts in short-lived climate pollutants have relatively little impact on peak warming. But, and this is the sort of ethical dilemma here, it does make a difference to warming to 2050. So. Reducing, you know, reducing methane and black carbon uh, would have a very substantial impact on climate—a much bigger impact on climate than uh, trying, than working as hard as you can on CO2 over the lifetime of most people alive today. So, and, and that's a, that, that's not a, you know, that, that's reasonably uncontentious science. So the issue here is not particularly the science of these things, but how we weight. Benefits in the next couple of decades against the long-term uh, benefit to the, the, the long-term benefit of avoiding higher levels of, of peak warming. So that's a that's an ethical issue. I think that's a, that's not an issue that, that we can really, uh, you know, we can we can we can do our best to clarify the science, um, but it's not one we can actually uh, resolve. Um, it is, however, worth thinking as scientists, you know, how we can. Communicate this issue better, because I think statements like "cuts in short-lived climate pollutants could buy us 20 years for CO2" are potentially very misleading. So this is really one of the things I want to sort of talk about. This is sort of the only new bit of work actually that I'm I'm wanting to I'm I'm presenting in this in this um, uh, talk is uh, how we can compare the impact of short-lived climate pollutants honestly to people in a way that doesn't get lost in the technical jargon of greenhouse gas metrics and so forth. So, to do this we need to ask ourselves how fast are CO2 emissions, current CO2 emissions, increasing our committed peak warming? Okay, Because if it's true that half a degree is worth a 20 year delay in CO2 mitigation, that implies that if we do nothing, to my mind, a reasonable interpretation of that statement is if we do nothing about CO2, then our committed peak temperatures would go up by half a degree if we waited 20 years. That sort of seems to me to be a logical implication of that economist's claim. Now, remember that the quote in the economist said, you know, 20, 20 more years to think about CO2 implies that, therefore, if you manage to take some measure, which knocks half a degree off global temperature. I suppose um, Steve um, comes up with a geoengineering... um, I I, I like to blame Steve for geoengineering because he's in charge of the Oxford Geoengineering Programme, although it's important to stress the Oxford Geoengineering Programme is looking at the ethics of geoengineering not doing it. Um, So so, so, um, anyway, but but the point is, suppose we had some geoengineering scenario which allowed us to shave half a degree off global temperatures. What's that worth in terms of CO2 emissions? And I think that's a good question. Can we, can we sort of quantify that a bit? So we have a simple relationship coming out of the, the, uh, the science of the carbon cycle. Roughly speaking, over the whole Anthropocene, a trillion tons of carbon injected into the atmosphere gives you about two degrees of warming. And two trillion tons gives you about four degrees, and so on. It's a pretty simple relationship. Okay? So total amount of carbon you inject Translates into the kind of warming you should expect. So, current emissions, roughly 10 billion tonnes of carbon per year, 100 billion tonnes of carbon per decade. It's not a complicated sum to work out that implies 0.2 degrees per decade. So, that sort of implies that if you had something else which cuts temperatures by half a degree, that's 25 years. Okay? Sounds like the economist was right all along. Okay? But then, wait a minute. What does that imply? So in effect what you're talking about here is you've got emissions doing this and you're asking what would tem- where would temperatures peak if this is now. You're asking where would temperatures peak if emissions did that, okay, so this is zero, okay, versus carrying on for 20 years and doing that, okay? That's what that comparison Ten billion tons of carbon per year is equal to 0.2 degrees per decade. That's what that comparison implies. Okay. Now nobody, I, I hope, uh, envisages emissions doing this. Okay. That would be um, the only kind of scenario that the result in emissions doing that would be really unpleasant. <laughs> okay. So, so um, that's you know, it's not it's not a scenario we're actually considering. And yet, it's actually the scenario underlying that kind of equation of emissions to, um, peak to committed warming. So, what's a more realistic way of thinking about this? Well, start from the fact that cumulative CO2 emissions determine peak warming. And that implies if we're committed to reducing, uh, to, to limiting peak warming to two degrees, for example, which we are, I mean, that's what government, um, the world's governments are uh, uh, notionally aiming for. That implies, in order to keep the total below a trillion tons, remember it's roughly a trillion tons per two degrees, okay, in order to keep the total below a trillion tons, emissions need to decline on average from now on by roughly 2.5% per year. Okay? Just to illustrate that, that's the sort of green curve here. Okay? They're wobbling around like that. If we start now... Okay, emissions, they might overshoot, but the area under the curve has to be the green area here to give you a two degree committed warming. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so now I have to think about what's the impact of delay. Well, obviously, you could delay, and as in that other figure I showed you, let's go back to it, here we are. You could delay by 20 years and cut much faster, 10% per year. And actually have no impact on peak warming. But ethically speaking, that doesn't make very much sense. You're basically saying, well, we're going to do nothing now, but um, the citizens of the planet of 2040 are going to somehow cut CO2 emissions by 10% per year, which nobody actually has any idea how they would actually do that. So, you know, ethically speaking, that you might say that was that was questionable as a way of framing your framing the problem. So a more realistic way of thinking about it is to say, look, we're, we're sort of notionally committed to two degrees. That implies a 2.5% per year reduction. If we delay, just to keep one thing changing, let's just think about what's the impact of delay. But keeping the rate of reduction after the peak the same. That's a more realistic way of thinking about the impact of delay. And you find now, because of course it's the area that matters, um, the additional area in this yellow band here is very different from the additional area if I just chop the two off. See what I mean? Yeah? And you find that delaying by 11 years or so knocks up global temperatures by 0.4 degrees. So instead of 25 years, instead of half a degree being worth 25 years on this um, sort of absurd scenario, it's worth only 12, 13 years on this sort of way of thinking about the problem. I haven't seen this anywhere, but I think it's interesting because it's a good way of thinking about it, because it sort of tells you, yeah, it's not worth nothing, but as Nick says, 10 years is now on CO2 policy. You know, it takes us 10 years to do anything, even convene a conference. Um, so, so, you know, that, that sort of kind of puts the potential of these short-lived climate pollutants into perspective. And of course, the other implication of this way of thinking about it is if you don't, meet the 2 degree goal. If you sort of say, well actually we'll probably end up at 3 degrees, then, okay, this is what happens. Basically that says on average you're going to reduce slower in the future. Okay? So this is the rate of reduction you would get if you're going to end up with uh, an area under the curve consistent with 3 degrees. Okay? And then of course, you know, the extra area, goes up very rapidly, so then suddenly, you know, cutting short with time pollutants only buys you eight years or so. Or, if you think you're gonna to go to four degrees, your color scale runs out. Sorry, I was producing these props this morning. Um, but I don't care, if your color scale runs out at six degrees, that's kind of realistic, don't I? I mean, we don't, we don't know what we do beyond six degrees. So here's a, a nice way of uh, framing this problem of comparing Cumulative emissions like CO2 with um, the impact of these short lived pollutants. Um, All I'm I'm really doing here is saying, um, you know, thinking about the areas under these curves, um, we can can equate committed CO2 induced warming or the rate of how fast committed CO2 induced warming is going up by just saying, right, the current CO2 induced warming rate is whatever it is 0.15 to 0.12. Uh, 0.15 to 0.2 degrees per decade. Multiply that by the expected peak warming um, and divide by the current warming, because basically, if you think that things are going to peak at two degrees, and that's roughly double where we're at now, if you delay, the commitment goes up in proportion to that, to, to, to the, in proportion. So, the amount, I haven't really thought of how to say this, but hopefully you're getting it, if I just wave my hands enough. Um, the commitment's going up by the amount by which the committed warming is greater than the current observed warming. Okay? We can come back to that at question time, if so it made no sense to you. And the point is this, basically, the committed warming is going up twice as fast as the observed warming, is the bottom line, if you think we're going for two degrees. Because the current warming is about one degree, so the committed warming is going up at roughly 0.4 degrees per decade, even though the actual warming is going up at 0.2 degrees per decade. Okay, so it's a very simple way of, of, of thinking about it, and I think it's actually a much more realistic way of comparing these gases than um, this sort of um, cataclysmic scenario that nobody actually thinks is going to happen or nobody hopes is going to happen. Um, I, as usual, have got about um, a third of the way through the lecture, so um, I'm going to cut to. So it just uh, excuse me for a minute while I just do it, some rapid editing. Um, and, oops, oh no, 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 I didn't want to do that because that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so um, to sort of come, come, to sort of thinking about um, and sort of to get, get things going for the questions, um, thinking about what we're actually going to, to do about CO2. So I sort of argued that this whole sort of excitement about alternatives to CO2 is misplaced, Um, They they buy you a certain amount of time, it's not completely misplaced, but they don't buy you very much. In fact, the amount of time they buy you is kind of inside the noise as to what what impact measures we might take to reduce CO2 uh, actually have. So, you know, it all comes back to CO2 policy. And the problem we have with CO2 policy is that we conceive of it in this way. And this is why going to Doha would be really helpful for anybody um, who sort of is thinking about the climate issue. You've got, you've got to look at, look at the scene in Doha um, and ask yourself if current policy can possibly work. The main sort of the, the, the scenario we have for climate policy is that we will somehow um, raise, emis- uh, raise expenditure on emission taxes and permits and somehow turn the entire global energy economy upside down. Okay. From an almost exclusively fossil fuel based economy to one which is completely different, and thereby make all these near term impacts of climate change go away. Of course, that, that's not what's going to happen, it's not what's happening, and um, we, the, the challenge we face is it's going to be very difficult to motivate that happening when the amount we spend on energy, and this is a sort of number that people need to sort of take away with it, the amount we spend on energy is. Dwarfs estimates of the um, near-term impacts of climate change certainly over the next fifty years. So the amount the amount we're currently spending on energy is over five trillion dollars per year, and most of that's fossil energy. Okay, so um, that's at roughly one dollar in every ten that's spent. It's extraordinary numbers. That's why Doha is the way it is. Okay, now estimates of what the near-term impacts of climate change are vary wildly. They're very uncertain. But the sort of numbers that are kicked around are in the hundreds of billions of dollars per year, not the multi-trillion dollars per year. So you know it's at the order of 10% or less of the amount we spend on energy. Okay, And so to solve a problem this size, we're proposing to completely upend an industry that's this size. Okay, And that's the problem we have. So, you know, I think we're not going to make progress on this until we work out how we can kind of incorporate these uh, long-term impacts of climate change into the cost of energy um, as we um, uh, as we use it at the moment. And I think this plays directly to the um, loss and damage agenda, which has now come onto the UNFCCC negotiations, which I why I think that's a particularly... It was a, not a particularly heavily reported on development, but I think it is actually ultimately one which is going to ma- matter a great deal. Um, and the reason I think it matters, I'll just sort of again give you something to think about and bear with me as I flick over the um, jokes. <laughs> moving on, moving on. This is where it freezes because it's a very slow slide. Okay. And uh, so just to sort of wrap up, um, you know, we've got this current situation and the sort of ethical challenge we face is um, producers of fossil carbon, if they inadvertently release it into the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, um, they are responsible for cleanup, okay? So, so this is uh, the uh, uh, notorious um, BP disaster a few years ago, um, and uh, you know, this shrimp fisherman may have uh, lost a lot of money as a result of the contamination of the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, But um, he was uh, at least able to get a job uh, while uh, he wasn't um, trim fishing, um, helping BP with the cleanup, and also he was entitled to a substantial amount of compensation uh, from BP uh, as a result. On the other hand, if you release fossil carbon into the atmosphere, okay, and thereby make events like um, some of the Wildfires and heat waves that have recently been sweeping Australia. I was uh, in Tasmania a few weeks ago. It was kind of ironic. We had this meeting with climate scientists there just after the whole. They had to invent a new colour for the Australian weather maps, um, and, uh, uh, and and Tony Abbott still said it's nothing to do with climate, change. Um, and and um, all for that matter, um, storms threatening uh, the Arctic village of Um That's that's not your problem. It's 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 sort of it's the, the problem is is the Entirely, are uh, the problem of, of the of the victims uh, of these impacts rather than the problem of, of the of the polluter, and that, that's I think really the ethical dilemma we face, and want to sort of think about is how we can connect up those things, such that the extraordinary wealth that can be generated by uh, burning fossil fuels can somehow be connected up with addressing the problems that they cause. And I think that would be a good point to move to questions and discussion. Okay, thank you.